Section 27 of The Empresses of Constantinople. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michelle Lee. The Empresses of Constantinople by Joseph McCabe. Chapter 18, Part 1. Anna of Savoy. The first wife of Andronicus III, Irene of Brunswick, had died prematurely five years after her marriage. Andronicus had quickly recovered from his grief and plunged again into his customary pleasures, but his grandfather insisted that the throne of the Empress must not remain vacant. Whatever substitute for an all-mock de Goth of the times afforded was scanned once more, and it was discovered that the young Count of Savoy had an eligible sister named Jeanne. The little principality which was destined to have so important an influence on the fortunes of Europe had only been recently carved out of the German Empire, and the name of the ruling house was in high esteem. It was still, however, a mere patch of the hills and valleys of Switzerland, and when legates came from the Byzantine court for the hand of Jean, she was readily yielded to them. Whether Anna, as the Greeks promptly christened her, would find Constantinople equal to the reputation of its splendor that still lingered in Europe may be doubted. The majority of the gorgeous palaces in which our earlier empresses had moved were now heaps of ruins. From the roofs of the public and imperial buildings, the copper had been torn to make coin, and the marble from their facades and halls had gone to deck the palaces of Venice and Genoa. Great stretches of desolate, ruin-encumbered spaces existed within the crumbling walls, and the streets no longer glittered with the proud display of tr domestic treasure on the balconies as a royal calvacade passed along. Some gold and silver may still have lingered in the reduced palaces before the disastrous civil war, but the display now made in the imperial households and processions was largely a display of imitation diamonds and gilded furniture. For the first time, in fact, we find Constantinople itself impressed by its visitors, even from the small court in Savoy. The Count had sent with his sister a large escort of knights, and as the marriage was deferred for eight months, they had ample time to exhibit their skill in tournaments. Why the marriage was postponed from February 1326 to October must be left more or less to the imagination. Cantacuzinus observes that Anna was indisposed after her journey, but one may find more enlightenment in his casual remark that Andronicus was ill, and after receiving his betrothed, went for some months into Thrace. It would probably be indelicate and impertinent to attempt a diagnosis. He returned in the autumn, married and crowned Anna, and permitted her train of knights to return to Savoy. Since Byzantine history is too full of large and tragic matters to recount the small details of domestic life, and since the empresses would, in their early years, if they were fortunate, be confined to these small domestic interests, we pass lightly over the youth of Anna of Savoy. In the spring, after their marriage, she accompanied Andronicus to Didymotachus, and would be faintly interested in the conferences of Andronicus and his mother with the king of Bulgaria, in the following year, Andronicus dethroned his grandfather, and Anna found herself mistress of the empire. The scene at Didymotachus during the illness of her husband two years afterwards would complete her introduction to Byzantine politics, 
and make her realize the importance of Cantacuzanus and his friends. Andronicus was, however, still a comparatively young man, and it was probable that he would outlive the older intriguers about him. He was only 34 years old at the time of his dangerous illness, and he returned to his boisterous sports and gaieties. In 1332, Anna, who was at Didymotechus, gave birth to a son, and Andronicus came on the scene in a mood of wild rejoicing. His Olympic games and western jousts alarmed and scandalized elderly ministers who shuddered to see the sacred breast of an emperor expanded boldly to meet a lance. But he laughed at etiquette, told his courtiers to put away the kind of silk-covered mitres that they have had hitherto been compelled to wear at court, and allowed them to have any dress or headgear they pleased. Fun and good fellowship were his ideals. He kept, to the despair of the imperial treasurer, a vast number of hounds, horses, and hawks, and there was no better way to secure a favor than to present him with a good dog or horse. It is just to add that Andronicus made a sincere attempt to improve the administration of justice in the empire, but apart from this one sincere and fruitless effort at reconstruction, he danced down the road of death like all his frivolous subjects. A little war, the suppression of a rebellion or two, and mighting hunting and jousting filled the thirteen years of his single reign. The Turk drew nearer and nearer and received no very serious check. The city of Nicaea had now fallen into the hands of the Turk, and the crescent flashed on the shores of the Sea of Marmara. Andronicus could do little more than trust the old Byzantine weapon. Intrigue, ruse, diplomacy. His sister Anna, who had married the prince of Epirus, assassinated her husband and invited her brother to annex the territory. His daughter Irene, who had married the emperor of Trebizond and found him unfaithful, assassinated her husband and sent to Andronicus for a ruler. He was endeavoring to profit by these assassinations when death overtook him. Earlier in his reign, the veteran Sergini had rebelled. Andronicus, knowing the mettle of his opponent, had fortified and victiculed the palace, where he left Anna and her boy and gone out to the field. But he removed the danger in the end by deception and assassination. At length, in the early summer of 1341, Andronicus became alarmingly ill. He shrewdly put off his stained purple and retired to a monastery in preparation for death. And he passed away on the 15th June, leaving Anna with two boys of nine and four years. Then began the romance of Anna of Savoy. The chief person of the romance, apart from the empress, are the ambitious intriguers we have previously seen about the sickbed of Andronicus. The courtly and cultivated Cantacuzanus, the meaner, though less hypocritical financier, Apocacus, and the mother of Cantacuzanus. Theodora Palogina was, as her name implies, herself a member of the Palogii family. She was a descendant of Martha, the sister and counselor of Michael Palogius, the viral lady who had been put in a sack with cats by Theodore Lacarsus, a strong and abled and ambitious woman, although, since her husband's death, she had worn the robe of a nun. There was a complete understanding between her and her less resolute son. Apocacus, on the other hand, an active, restless, unscrupulous little man, who slept little at nights, was prepared to ally himself with either Anna or the Cantacuzani, as seemed most profitable. We have no reason to doubt the statement of 
Cantacuzinus that when Andronicus lay dying, Apocacus urged him directly and through his mother to seize the crown, and that he refused. He was not in the habit of acting so promptly. He went to the palace in which Anna wept with her boys, assured her that he would protect them, and placed five hundred guards about the palace. It may have occurred to Anna that there was no one except himself from whom they needed to be protected. Andronicus died on the following day, and she went, as Cantacuzinus would have foreseen, to spend the customary nine days in mourning by the remains of her husband. What Cantacuzinus might have done while she kept her dreary vigil in the monastery, we cannot say, for his plans were interrupted. On the fourth day, Anna surprised him by breaking the sacred custom and returning to the palace. It argues some strength of character in her that she should take this step, though it was not an original inspiration. Apocacus had changed sides, and had gone to warn Anna that his rival aimed at the throne and she must return to watch him. But Cantacuzinus was even more surprised and baffled when the patriarch now came forward with the will of the late emperor and read from it that he, the patriarch, was to be the guardian of the young princes and their empire. The maze of intrigue that followed can be very well imagined and is fairly described in the chronicles. In fact, Gregorus and Cantacuzinus profess to give verbatim reports of the very lengthy speeches which, it seems, took the place of conversation in those days. The three aspirants to power besieged the chamber of Anna in turns and each spent many hours in assuring her of his loyalty and of the disloyalty of all the others. Though the strain made the empress ill, she seemed to have acted almost throughout with good judgment. The patriarch was her safest supporter, since each of the other two really aimed at the throne, and to the patriarch she clung, only tempering his advice by a fear of angering the two nobles and driving them to a coalition which would be fatal to her. The patriarch urged her to crown her elder boy John at once. It would be an effective step. But when Cantacuzinus and Apocacus protested that it could not be done at a time of mourning, she thought it best to refrain. At last, some kind of settlement was reached. Cantacuzinus was to be the Magnus Domesticus, or Major Domo, on an imperial scale, and to lead out the troops to check the advancing Bulgarians and Turks in Thrace. Apocacus was dissatisfied, and as soon as his rival had departed, he made a bold attempt to seize power. He had on the fringe of the city by the seashore a strongly fortified house or castle in which he could withstand an attack even of troops. It was impregnable, except to a large force on the land side, and a galley waited always at its private wharf on the other side to convey him by sea in case of need. His plan was to carry off John to this castle and then dictate his terms to the empress. Anna, however, was warned in time. The young prince was actually in the hands of his schemer when her young servants were sent to the rescue and Apocacus fled to his fortress and barred the doors. Cantacuzinus returned in haste to the city and set a troop of soldiers to watch the castle, but the empress, on the advice of the patriarch, refused to take extreme measures. As long as the two deadly rivals were poised against each other, her position was more secure. We must not, of course, attribute this prudent policy entirely or mainly to the inexperienced young empress. The patriarch was its chief author, and through the patriarch was by no means disinterested. He could not aspire to the throne. 
There can be no doubt that, ill and weary as she was, Anna acted with good judgment. Thwarted and exasperated, Cantacuzinus, in his turn, now mediated a coup, and it was only the singular irresolution or hypocrisy of his nature and the boldness of the patriarch that prevented it from being successful. One day, while he was discussing the situation with Anna, they heard a tumultuous rush and angry voices in the hall without. Anna asked the cause, and Cantacuzinus, professing that he did not know and going to learn, lightly reported that a crowd of soldiers and young nobles had penetrated the palace and were hectoring the patriarch. They insisted, he said, that Cantacuzinus should be allowed to enter the palace on horseback, an imperial prerogative, when he called, and the patriarch opposed them. He had, he told the empress, scolded the patriarch for even listening to the young fools and had driven them from the palace, and he advised the empress to admonish or punish them. It seems quite clear that in this case, a rather weak but deliberate plot on the part of Cantacuzinus had been foiled by the patriarch. The Magnus Domesticus then returned to the field, leaving his mother to watch the empress and threatening that he would punish any man who gave her anxiety in his absence. Gregorius says that he took with him an enormous sum of money, and we may conclude that he went with a fairly clear intention to raise the provinces. As soon as he removed his troops to Thrace, his rivals set to work in deadly earnest. Apocacus was pardoned at the instance of the patriarch and promoted to the dignity of Grand Duke and Prefect of Constantinople. So far, the policy was sound enough, but it was, no doubt, impossible for the ailing young empress to maintain the equilibrium any longer in face of their passion and perfidy of their opponent, and they plunged into civil war. Cantacuzinus was declared to be deposed, and it was even understood in the city that the patriarch promised the open gate of heaven to any man who would assassinate him. His friends and relatives were alarmed and fled to the deserted meadows beyond the walls where they had passed the night, and as they learned in the morning that their property had been confiscated, they hurried to the camp at Didymotechus with loud cries of Cantacuzinus, Emperor! After a becoming parade of real or feigned reluctance, the commander of the troops consented to accept the purple and prepared for civil war. An imperial outfit was hastily made at Didymotechus, so hastily that as the vain Cantacuzinus complains, the tunic was far too short, while the mantle hung about him like a sack, and the coronation took place. The ceremony gives us another empress of an not uninteresting character. Cantacuzinus was married to Irene, daughter of a court official of the former royal family of Bulgaria. Her mother had been Irene Paleogena, daughter of Michael Paleogius and Theodora. She remained tearful and anxious at Didymotechus, while her husband led out his troops, but she would afterwards take a vigorous part in the struggle. Irene's mother-in-law was the first victim of her own and her son's ambition and of the hatred of his enemies. Cantacuzinus, who always speaks with respect, if not generosity, of Anna, tells us the empress was not responsible for the barbarous treatment and death of his mother. She was imprisoned in one of the palace cells as soon as the trouble began, and from her dreary room she could hear the rabble of Constantinople shouting their customary obscene abuse of her and her son, and acclaiming Anna and John V. The young prince had been crowned at once by the patriarch. It was the early winter, and the aged Theodora was treated with studied insult and severity by her jailers. 
Her health soon broke, and she died in the palace dungeon. Cantacuzinus relates that a royal nun who had assisted and consoled his mother went to reprove Anna for the brutality to which she had been exposed. But he adds that Anna was ignorant of it and blameless. The close of the career of Theodora Palogina is one of the many reminders that to the end of the Byzantine Empire did not lack strong men and women. What it lacked was sound moral and patriotic feeling. The stock was not outworn and enfeebled, as historical writers are apt to say of decaying civilizations. Its strength was tainted and misdirected. The royal nun, I may add, who had visited Theodora in her cell was Theodora, daughter of Andronicus, the elder, and widow of Michael of Bulgaria, who here is seen for the last time. The course of the long civil war need not to be followed here. It opened disastrously for Cantacuzinus. Anna, Cantacuzinus tells us, longed for peace and proposed that he should not hold the chief power in the empire, though not wear the purple and that his daughter, Helena, should marry her son, the Emperor John. It would have been the best settlement, but it did not suit the ambition of Apocacus and the Patriarch. Apocacus urged the Patriarch to live in the palace and bribed Anna's servants to watch her day and night in order to prevent her from communicating with Cantacuzinus. Later, Cantacuzinus visited the famous monks of Mount Athos and induced them to send a few of their community to plead with Anna to arrest the shedding of Christian blood. But the monks were intercepted by the patriarch and converted to his view of the situation before they reached the empress. End of section 27. Recorded by Michelle Lee.